Book of Revelation. All right. Uh, the amount of information, the interpretations, the insights, the abuses are so abundant uh, that to tackle the book is really quite daunting, I have to admit. Uh, why, one, I know like you, I too want the truth. So, and there are some really, really smart men and women who differ vastly over the contents and meaning of the book of Revelation that to cover it as a truth seeker is, as I said, daunting to say the least. Many teachers come to the table with presuppositional positions about Revelation and then they'll teach it as a fact. Meaning I'm gonna teach you Revelation from my presuppositional view and I want you to understand it according to the way I see it. And that is uh, tempting and it's hard to avoid. Uh, so, uh, and I don't wanna teach anything as fact unless it's a fact. And that's what's kind of difficult is because I am so up in the air on what is a fact and what is not on many things. I, 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 I kind of hold back on what to teach as this is it. So another difficulty with my teaching the book of Revelation is I want to adequately understand all the positions that people take when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation. And I'm just gonna quickly put up on the board If someone says, uh, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I'm a historist when it comes to the book of Revelation, it's acceptable. If they say I'm a preterist, it's acceptable. Futurist, ide idealist, either way. And I'll explain what those are and you'll get an understanding of what they are. And so this has forced me to, if I'm gonna teach it, to try to learn as many of the positions out there regarding the book and I'm not a towering intellectual. I get what I get by God's grace and by a lot of hard work. So it's not like I really can grasp this stuff easily like some other men and women can. Additionally, I have to admit that I'm prejudiced and I have a presuppositional view to the book and it is the third on that list, the preterist view. And uh, that view contains, you'll we'll learn, a couple views within itself, as does the futurist view. And so prejudices and presuppositions are a stumbling block to learning because I am gonna be jaded in how I see it. And as I go through, I'm gonna be like, oh, I'm, I'm gonna discount that or I'm gonna discount this because this doesn't coincide with my view. And so it's gonna be a lot of work to try to make sure that I don't jade or shade what we're teaching in the preterist view alone and that I give the idealist and the historist and the futurist view as much time to prove itself. And we're, I've, I've, I've inserted a way that I think it's a key to doing this effectively, and I'll introduce that to you in a second. And then finally, 
to really, truly teach the book of Revelation in an effective, contextual manner, you have to understand Old Testament prophecy. And you have to be able to really understand what Daniel and Ezekiel and others were talking about. I understand the Old Testament and its narrative fairly well. I've read through it two or three times uh, and studied it, but we've never verse by verse covered a book of the Old Testament yet. And I don't understand it nearly as well when it comes to prophecy. That's a, that's a, a, a handicap or a disability of mine. And so I am committed to trying to incorporate all the Old Testament passages that can reasonably be seen as having application in the book of Revelation. And uh, we'll see what happens as I try to go through that and make sure we incorporate that. And so admittedly, we embark on this project with some difficulties. I mean, just right off. That being said, uh, I'll do all I can to properly exegete. That means read and, and explain to you its contents. I'm convinced that in doing so, we're going to be able to present an open, notated, chronicled, videotaped, verse-by-verse -verse teaching of the 22 chapters in the book, the uh, 404 passages and the 9,500 and whatever words. That is the goal. So, but... Uh, my person and my prejudices and my lack of ability are not the only hindrance to our study it. We have an obstacle at almost every word. And I, I expect this place to be empty tomorrow, I mean next week, just because of how I'm prefacing this. Every word is in debate about what is meant. I'm not kidding. Interestingly enough, the four main ways Revelation is interpreted, ways that we will cover, as I said, they also represent obstacles to understanding the book properly as well. Because you might be an idealist and you might be a futurist and I might be a preterist and someone else might be a historicist and all of those things cause us to block out what could possibly be insane. For instance, the preterist view, which says that the contents of the book of Revelation have been fulfilled. And I'm just saying that generally, I won't go into partial and full preterists, comes forth in a stance that is divided within itself because there's some say most of what's in the book have been fulfilled and there's others that say all of what is written has been fulfilled. And there's a living debate on how to then interpret each word that we go through from just the single preterist view. The idealist view, it's also known as the spiritual view um, of Revelation. We're left up to spiritualizing the contents of the book and then we have to ask, whose spiritualization of the book's contents do we trust? We've had a guy named Origen who he spiritualized the text of Revelation and gave meaning to, to it from pure Joseph Smithian, I receive revelation and this is what it means, it's spiritual. The idealist view says there is no tangible reality to the book of Revelation. It's all spiritually uh, motivated. And so Origen said it's spiritually understood. Augustine is another one. He completely spiritualized the book of Revelation. So he doesn't say it doesn't have any bear. He says it doesn't have any bearing in reality. It's all this uh, story about God and good and evil and God and darkness and a warfare that has constantly been going on and it's spiritually understood. 
Uh, David Koresh, he burned up at Waco. He took the book of Revelation and he spiritualized it. And he said, we need to understand it in spiritual terms and taught about it a little bit with a historist view as well. So, and then speaking of the historists, I like the historist view a lot. And what it says is, it's pretty rational, but we're left up to the devices of people and how they say history has fulfilled the book. The historist view says, the book of Revelation reveals to us periods of time over the course of Christian history. And that we have the, the church of Pergamos and we have the church of uh, Sardis represented here. The church of Philadelphia is represented at the Reformation time, the church of the, and what they do is they say, here is history. The book of Revelation is addressing these periods of history as you read through it. And so that's the historist view, that history is what supports what is being said and done in the book. So that's another view that people take of it. But again, with the historist view, we have to say, well, who knows, who's the one to say whether uh, World War II and World War I uh, were being spoken of here, or was it something earlier? Or was it something different? And so you have to take men and women's interpretation again and say this must be what it means. Finally, the futurist application, uh, we're left with wondering what in the future is the book actually talking about? So again, we have to look to this is what this person believes it's saying. This is what that person believes it's saying. So the book is up in the air. And I don't mean to discourage you uh, with private and with corporatized interpretations, and it's no wonder, uh, ask yourself, has the book ever served to unite the body? Now the body of Christ, let's just say the body of Christ from the beginning, let's say when the book was, Revelation was made known, and from that point forward, has it served to bring us together? Has it served to enlighten and encourage or has it produced a mindset that is divisive and uh, at each other's throat, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of wondering of its purpose, we know from our study of some of the later non-Pauline epistles that the coming together of the New Testament canon is, was gonna be an interesting one. Uh, there are books that are accepted very quickly into the, the canonization of the books we have. And all, like almost from the start, the Gospels and uh, many of the other books found a home. As we've discovered in, in studying Hebrews and First and Second Peter and First and Second Third John, some of those books from very early on were uh, rejected by the early church fathers. And not to mention the reformers. The reformers also rejected them. So it's the interesting thing about the book of Revelation is that initially most of the early church fathers received it. They considered it from John and they considered it as being scripture, apostolically written, and should be included in canon. And so where other books sort of took time to gain acceptance, the book of Revelation, uh, as a feather in its cap for authenticity, was embraced quickly as being, yeah, this is okay in spite of its esoteric kind of controversial composition. The example of early church leaders, I'll give you a few, because some of you like this stuff. Uh, Papias, 125 AD, 
Book of Revelation, all go. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, uh, Hippolytus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, all supported the Book of Revelation as authoritative and as canonical, meaning it should be involved or included in the New Testament. Uh, and then every one of them also admitted, and this is important, that John, the son of Zebedee, the apostle, was the writer. Now, uh, I know you could say, of course he is. It's written right there. But you know from our other study of our other books here in Meet that sometimes, even though someone says this is who it is, there's debate as to whether someone really wrote it or not. Uh, there's a scholar named W. Bacon. He's an American theologian. He's among theologians. He's really well known. He says this about the initial reception of the book of Revelation. Quote, there's no book in the entire New Testament whose external attestation, I mean the external evidence for it and support of it, that compares with Revelation in nearness, clearness, definiteness, definiteness, and positiveness of statement, end quote. So he says, listen, that's from the making of the New Testament, page 190. That is his statement saying this thing has a lot of support in the early church, all right? The first evidence against the book of Revelation comes from a Roman Christian named Gaius. And at a time, he was really the only one who stood up against it. And this happened in the third century. And he rejected the book on the grounds that it was a forgery by a Gnostic heretic by the name of Serenthus. Serenthus was preaching this Gnostic heretical stuff, and the book of Revelation seemed to smack of some of the themes that Serenthus was talking about. And so Gaius said, this book is not reliable. It is from uh, an apostate. And so he rejected it on these grounds. Curiously, this is really one of the only early specific objections to uh, the book. Uh, there's another one, it's called Allogoi, uh, and I'm just mentioning it for you guys at home who might write, well, what about the Allogoi? And it, that has been disputed. It was a group that might not have even existed, and they supposedly were against it too. Uh, then there was, as we move on, Dionysus of Alexandria in the late third century, who made the argument that Revelation was written by another John. And this has continued on out to our day where there are a number of good, solid believers who believe it was another John who wrote the book of Revelation, uh, and that would then uh, for question its authenticity as an apostolic piece of work. Uh, and then Eusebius, church historian, you've heard his name, he also did not think that John the Revelator or John the Beloved was the one who compiled this uh, revelation from Christ. Interestingly, the real rejection of the book of Revelation, though, wasn't its authorship, and it wasn't whether it had historical evidences and support. Instead, as I said earlier, the main person who offered specific objections to Revelation in the early church was this Gaius guy who believed it was a forgery from Serenthus. And Gaius' objection was to a thing, and I don't know if it's pronounced Chileism or Chileism, but that Chileism or Chileism taught that there would be a golden age on the earth where Christ would reign for a thousand years in his body. That's known in theological circles as uh, Chileanism or Chileanism before the final judgment on the earth. 
okay? And Gaius opposed Kiliastic teachings in the church, uh, especially those that Serenthus was promoting. And it was all probably because in Revelation chapter 20, this is the view that's proposed. And because that view was proposed and it supported Kilianism, Gaius said Serenthus is the one who's written this and thrown it off as a book we need to uh, relate to as scripture. And he said it's not. Even though Gaius is pretty much alone in these specific objections and revelations, his resistance apparently did have a negative effect on the church, particularly in the East. And there was a, a resurgence in the fourth century that cropped up that said, we're not so sure about this book. And uh, nevertheless, uh, it was supported at the Council of Hippo, uh, 9, 393 AD, and at Carthage, 4, I think, uh, 397 AD. So, uh, jump out 200 years, not jump out about um, 1,200 years, 1,100 years, and we come to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther said this about the book. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. Are you ready? About this book of Revelation of John, I leave everyone free to hold his own opinions. I would not have anyone bound to my opinion or judgment. I say what I feel. I miss more than one thing in this book, and it makes me consider it to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. First and foremost, the apostles do not deal with visions, but prophecy in clear and plain words, as do Peter and Paul and Christ in the gospel. But it befits the apostolic office to speak clearly of Christ and his deeds without images and visions. Moreover, there is no prophet in the Old Testament to say nothing of the new who deals so exclusively with visions and images. For myself, I think it approximates the fourth book of Esdras. That is an apocryphal book that didn't make it into our Protestant Bibles, but it is a book that made it into the Catholic Bibles. It's one of the, one of the apocryphal books that we don't carry, but they do. Luther goes on, I can in no way detect the Holy Spirit produced it. Moreover, he seems to me to be going much too far when he commends his own book so highly. We don't see that in the other books of Scripture. We don't see Paul saying, and this book is so important to your solar salvation. Indeed, Luther says, more than any of the other sacred books do, though they are much more important. And threatens, he threatens, the writer threatens, that if anyone takes anything away from it, God will take him from, etc., etc. Take him, take away from him. He says, again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is, to say nothing of keeping it. This is just the same as if we did not have the book at all. And there are many far better books able for us to keep. Many of the fathers, he continues as a quote, also rejected this book a long time ago. Although St. Jerome, to be sure, 
refers to it in exalted terms and says that it is above all the praise and all the words as many mysteries in it. Still, Jerome cannot prove this at all, and his praise at numerous places is too generous. Finally, he concludes, let everyone think of it as his own spirit leads him. I really like this quote. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me, this is reason enough to not think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. That's a, kind of a strong statement. He is mentioned. But to teach Christ, this is the thing which an apostle is bound above all else to do. As Christ says in Acts 1, you shall be my witnesses. Therefore, I stick to the books which present Christ to me clearly and purely, end quote. So that is from the, the father of the Reformation. And, uh, and yet we, we have it, we still read it, we study it, we fight about it, we have postulations about it. You all know that. So there you have it. This is a stance uh, that is going to lead to a fifth view that we're going to cover next week and include in our study each week the four views and then a fifth. And we'll just continue those on as we read through and we'll see. I kind of want to go through and teach it. And as we teach it, when we come to the first views, uh, the first view uh, verses or second or first 10 verses, I want to step back at each kind of interval and say, I personally believe that what we just read best fits this view or best fits that. And the one that best fits it will give it a, uh, will give it a star. And whatever book, whatever view comes out of the five views, the best at the end of the verse-by-verse -verse study, then we'll say, well, that is what, and, and in, that, in that scorekeeping, that's when you guys will voice your opinion and say, I don't think that, you, I think you've picked wrong. I don't think that's the historist view. I think that's the uh, futurist view or whatever it is. So in that way, we are taking upon ourselves to read it. We'll study it. We'll talk about it. We'll score it, and at the end, we'll see what, what view has the most stars, and, and then you can decide what you'll do anyway, but it might be of benefit to people who are trying to understand it as well. So, the book is the most important eschatological, eschatological, eschatology is a big word. Uh, eschos is for the end. It's the end, and so it's the biggest book on the description of the end of things. And in the Bible, I'm sure um, you're well aware, it presents the information through imagery that depicts a cosmic battle that is going on between heaven and earth, literally, figuratively, spiritually, will decide in very, very esoteric language. And because of its apocalyptic leanings toward end times and its cryptic descriptions, these debates thrive uh, over its contents. And as we read it, we have to constantly ask ourselves, and I, and I petition you to do this, is this book a prophecy of future events uh, yet to take place, or have the prophecies been fulfilled, or is it both? Is it talking about something that's happened? Is it talking about something that happened this way and it will happen again in another way, or the same way? You know, in our day and age, we. We have two public figures known within people who have been Christian for quite a while. And one is named Tim LaHaye. He's now dead. And another is Hank Hennegraaff. 
And uh, Tim LaHaye wrote a series of books called the Left Behind series. And the Bible uh, answer man's name is Hank Hennegraff. Hank Hennegraff is on uh, Christian radio and he's always, he's called the Bible answer man and people call in and talk to Hank and he gives his views. And Tim LaHaye is a book writer and he's written a bunch of books. And in Hanegraaff openly took on LaHaye's futurist view. And, and I mean, he really threw it down. He threw down on him. He said, you're, you're making stuff up. I mean, this is a view that is just not supported by scripture. You're selling lots of books, uh, Brother Tim, but he essentially was saying, this is heretical. Uh, and at the same, so in Hanegraaff's book, it's called The Apocalypse Code, Hanegraaff asserts that the events of Revelation were largely fulfilled in 70 AD uh, with the fall of Jerusalem. And he openly criticizes LaHaye for his hyper-literal approach to Revelation. But there's more. For instance, Hanegraaff, while supporting what is called the partial preterist view, that almost everything in the book was fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem, Hanegraaff also says, however, from chapter 20, 21, and 22, that has yet to happen. And that is what we are waiting for. So he's known as a partial preterist. A full preterist view would say the whole thing has happened, including uh, chapters 20, 21, and 22. So even Hanegraaff, who took on Tim LaHaye and challenged him openly and publicly and ridiculed him, he too has people who would step up and say, I challenge you now on what you believe. So that's kind of the difficulty of the book. Uh, the debate has raised confusion as in the Bible. After all, uh, Hanegraaff and LaHaye are, you know, they're good Christian men. They believe the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it's created some no small stir. Uh, but the debate is nothing new. And it's really, I say, I only put the four views up here and we'll add a fifth, but there's the idealist, there's the historicist, there's the dispensationalist view, dispensational futurists, premillennial futurist, postmillennial futurist, partial preterist, full preterist, the revelation's not inspired at all view, the wacko view. I mean, we could put probably a dozen views up there, but we're just going to hit the main ones where people are generally accepted as okay within the body of Christ. I believe that the spread across... Um, I think that... We can, we can come to terms by trying to access it this way. Each view attempts to interpret Revelation according to the laws of what are called hermeneutics. And I'm sure you've heard of that. Hermeneutics means the study of biblical things through interpretation. How you interpret. What's your hermeneutic for interpreting this passage or that? Um, so let me just tell you quickly. The idealist approach believes that apocalyptic literature like Revelation should be interpreted uh, allegorically. So I'm just going to add under here for your view. Spiritual meaning. The preterist and the historicist views are similar in some ways to the allegorical method. I means stop now. Um, but it is more accurate to say that preterist and historicist view of Revelation act as um, 
inflation. Uh, and this is interesting. right as you read it and see it. And, but I don't see them applying it literally. I see a lot of spiritual interpretation in trying to apply it to our day. And that to me isn't necessarily a, a, a literal uh, view. The not inspired view suggests something similar to Luther. And we could add that up there, the not inspired view. The wacko view is just bizarre interpretations of what it means. So, uh, to the preterist view, we could write R.C. Sproul under there. You may have heard of R.C. Sproul. Uh, he's not a full preterist. He's a partial preterist. Uh, Ken Gentry, he's a partial preterist. A guy named Gary DeMar, partial preterist. Full preterists include Don Preston. He came and spoke here uh, at uh, campus uh, maybe a year ago. Ed Stevens, John Noe, all full preterists, all great lovers of God and Christians. Full preterism among many circles of Christians is considered heretical because full preterist view of the resurrection is different than what most Christians believe. And so many fundamental Christian believers will say full preterism is a heretical position and don't include full preterism in the acceptable views of the book. Idealists, I mentioned Origen, Augustine, Karl Barth. If you've ever heard of the theologian Karl Barth, he was an idealist when it came to uh, uh, scripture. A guy I've been influenced by, Jacques Uyel, uh, a Frenchman, Christian anarchist. He uh, is a, uh, sees uh, the book of Revelation as allegorical. And the historist is uh, Isaac Newton, John Wycliffe, Bible translator, was a historist. And one of my favorite Bible commentators, Albert Barnes, uh, is a uh, Bible uh, historist as well. Futurists, and remember, under the futurist category, you're going to see premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, dispensationalists, all that stuff. I'm not going to get too heavy in the differences in there. I'm just going to call it all futurists. Tim LaHaye, Calvary chapels, uh, generally, not generally, they all are, in order to be a Calvary chapel, highly futurists. So they spend a lot of time preparing their congregates for the coming that is described in Revelation. Be ready, it's here, we see the sign. And I cut my teeth on Calvary Chapel, so I was part of that culture for a solid three or four or five years. Uh, Martin Luther, no revelation. Then wackos, Charles Manson and uh, David Koresh all used revelation and other wackos to justify their own um, sinister things, whatever it is. So we'll work through the five main views before we embark on a single word of the text, and that's gonna take us the next two weeks. Uh, Today, we will discuss the idealist view. And then next week, the historist, the uh, preterist, the futurist, and then the no revelation view at all. Uh, after that, we will work our way through the book. Now, I pause on that no revelation at all to a lot of Christians that would be shocking to say, uh, just chop that off. Um, but it is a viable, really, truly viable stance and just because the book has been included by men into our canon doesn't necessarily mean it has been inspired or that it does have value. And I, I'll stand by that because like Luther, I wonder sometimes about its purpose in the book. But there is a really unique purpose we'll get to later that could, could be applied. All right. Uh, 
I'm going to take the liberty as we go forward and teach that this book is supposed to be in the Bible. So I'm not going to go back, oh, you know, I'm just going to take, it's supposed to be here. Therefore, while we will cover the postulation that it should not be in the Bible as one of our views, I'm going to try to validate the four views of interpretation so that you can walk away without just that radical idea as revelation shouldn't be in there. And this was under the advice of uh, Mary. Uh, she gave me that advice. I think it's good. Because if I was just to stand up and say, you know, this, this isn't worth the time, which I've tried to do a number of times, it hasn't worked, so let's go through it and do the work. Um, and what we're going to do is I told you this, the Revelation scorecard, and we'll keep that in mind as we go through our way. Okay, the idealist view. Spiritual view, allegorical view, the allegorical method to the book of Revelation. Um, introduced by the ancient church father Origen in 185 to 254, A.D., way back, made prominent by Augustine, who's a major church player in 354, right after the time of uh, Constantine and right during the time of Constantine. And according to this view, the events of Revelation are not tied to historic events. So those of you who are taking notes, that's a big one. Not. We cannot tie the meaning of the book to actual things that happen in actual time-space history. The imagery of the book symbolically represents the ongoing struggle throughout the ages between God against Satan, good against evil. In this struggle, the saints of God are persecuted and martyred by the forces of evil, but the message is one day they will have their vindication. Okay? In the end, God is victorious and his sovereignty is displayed throughout the ages. There is a, uh, a Bible man named Robert Mounts. He's a scholar and he's an expert in the book of Revelation. He summarizes the idealist view by this, quote, Revelation is a theological poem. Poem. I'm terrible at poems or understanding them. Uh, Revelation is a theological poem representing the ageless struggle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. It is a philosophy of history wherein Christian forces are continually meeting and conquering the demonic forces of evil, end quote. That's Robert Mounts' explanation of what the idealist view is. In his commentary on Revelation, the late 19th century scholar William Milligan said, quote, while the apocalypse thus embraces the whole period of the Christian dispensation, by the way, uh, the Apocalypse is another name for the book of Revelation. The Catholics call it the Apocalypse in their Bible. It doesn't say Revelation. It's called the Apocalypse, probably because that's uh, what it would be termed in the Greek. But uh, Milligan says, it sets before us this period, the action of great principles and not specific incidents. Okay? We are not to look in the Apocalypse for special events both for the exhibition of the principles which govern the history of both the world and the church, end quote. So we're not going to read it and try from the idealist view to say, ah, remember this? This is when Napoleon came and they just say, don't even try it. Therefore, the symbols of Revelation are not tied to specific points in history. The battles in Revelation are viewed as spiritual warfare. It's a spiritualized text manifested in the persecution of Christians or wars in general that have occurred throughout history, 
but it's the spiritual warfare manifesting in the actual warfare. And in this way, the beast from the sea, we're going to read about the beast, may be identified as satanically inspired political uh, opposition to the church age. Or a beast from the land represents paganism or corruption. You, it, it's a very tough way to read it. You have to really believe you're in tune with the spirit through the idealist uh, interpretation because you're spiritualizing everything that it says. In a simil similar light, there, a harlot is spoken of, represents the, the church has been compromised. So we have to read that. Or the seduction of the world in general, or the seals and the trumpets and the bowls represent natural disasters that happen, but not a specific one. All right, as God works out his plan for the redemption of man throughout history. So catastrophes represent God's displeasure with sinful men and or Satan. And, but however, sinful men will go through these catastrophes, horribly described sometimes, and still refuse to repent, still refuse to turn. That's the idealist, symbolic, allegorical message that men, no matter what they are experiencing, are going to still stay to their ways. And Revelation allegorically teaches us this. But God ultimately triumphs in the end. The strength of this view is that it avoids the problem of trying to harmonize passages of the Old Testament right in with passages in Revelation. And that is the job that people try to do to make those Old Testament passages have a mate in Revelation so that it can be, quote unquote, fulfilled. Simultaneously, it also makes the book of Revelation applicable and relevant to all periods of the church. Those who are reading it in 100 AD or, or 200 AD or today, it, the spiritual warfares described make it applicable to us as well. And that's one of the positives of the idealist view of the book. Um, ever-present conflict, but no necessary consummation of that conflict with this grand and glorious physical end uh, of things happening. Revelation 1.1 states that the events will come to pass shortly. And we're going to read that theme. You've heard me talk about it many times, which gives the impression that John is prophesying of something that actually will happen. This opening statement is in conflict with the idealist view that nothing is going to come to pass. John seems to be writing that it's going to. The idealist would say, yeah, but it never really does. It's an ongoing warfare. So additionally, when we try to read spiritual meetings, we're often left with arbitrary and private interpretations. And you're going to have a spiritual meaning that differs from mine. Followers of the idealist approach have often allowed the culture and sociopolitical factors to kind of influence their interpretation rather than trying to pursue a sound hermeneutic of what the author was really trying to say. It becomes this game of trying to say, this is the, this is the principle that's being discussed. Uh, American scholar Merrill Tenney and Greek uh, scholar, he states, quote, the idealist view assumes a spiritual interpretation and allows no concrete significance whatsoever to figures that it employs. According to this view, there are not merely symbolic of events and persons as the historist view commands, 
They are only abstract symbols of good and evil. They may be attached to any time or place, but like the characters in Pilgrim's Progress, represent qualities or trends. In interpretation, the apocalypse may thus mean anything or nothing according to the whim of the interpreter, end quote. So we have people in the state and in the nation and world who are idealists when they view the book of uh, Revelation. And the real message will be, can we accept them? Can we embrace them? Can we accept this view with them being Christians? So while this is one of the difficulties of the idealist view, uh, it's kind of admittedly one of the difficulties of all the views that we all are going to throw into the pot what we, what we think it's saying. The second view, we'll cover it today, is called the preterist view. Preter is a Latin word, and people say preter and because they think it is saying pre as in, uh, I don't know why they say preter, because I don't think the pronunciation is that. It's preter, uh, and it means past. And there is, as I've said, full preterist and partial preterist. Both views believe that the prophecies of the Olivet Discourse. Now, I'll just tell you right now. What is the Olivet Discourse? Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives, and he has a discourse with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Andrew. Okay? And in that Olivet Discourse, they ask him, preface it with two questions. When will these things, three questions, when will these things be? What will be the sign of thy coming? And when will be the end of this age? That is the question, three questions. And in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus then spends the rest of the chapter and then part of the following chapter explaining to them the answers to these three questions. So when you hear someone talk about the Olivet Discourse, that's what it is. Well, both views, full preterist and partial preterist, believe that the prophecies of the Olivet Discourse were fulfilled in the century of 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. So anybody, if a futurist goes and he uses what is written in uh, the Olivet Discourse, a preterist would say that was all completed in 70 AD. Summarized, chapters one through three describe the conditions of the seven churches of Asia and uh, minor, uh, Asia Minor prior to the Jewish war. And the remaining chapters of Revelation and Jesus' Olivet Discourse describe the destruction of, by the Romans of Jerusalem. Full preterists, as I said, believe that all prophecies found in Revelation, every one of the descriptions has been completed by 70 AD and that we are now living in the spiritual new Jerusalem come from heaven. We're living in a spiritual kingdom where everything is spiritually interpreted and lived through. And we are now in the new heavens and in the new earth. This is what it is since that time. Partial preterists believe that most of the prophecies of Revelation were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, but that chapters 20, 21, and 22 point to future events such as a future resurrection of believers and the return of Christ to the earth. There is the difference between the partial and the, and the full, and simply put. Generally speaking, partial preterists and most of Christianity view full preterism as heretical since classically understood, it denies the literal second coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh and teaches what most claim is an unorthodox view of the resurrection. 
And this is why it is considered by many Christians to be a heretical stance, full preterism. Uh, I would state here that as, as a full preterist, I do not, and I don't know why in everything I've studied about full preterism that it's always included, they don't believe in the literal second coming of Christ Jesus in the flesh. I do believe in the literal second coming of Christ Jesus in the flesh. And I believe that it is played out as he talked about in the Olivet Discourse in, Ma in Matthew 24 in 70 AD upon Jerusalem. I believe that's what it was. But uh, uh, the, the, this is one of the criticisms that is out there. Oh, you're a full preterist? Well, you deny that Jesus returned in the flesh. And that is just not part of, so we can see even more splitting off. Church historians trace the roots of preterism to a Jesuit priest named Louis de Alcazar in 1554. And people who are preterists know this. Um, Alcazar's interpretation is, is considered to be a response to the historist view. be a, uh, a thought out, laid out harmony of scripture that takes that preterist view. Uh, however, some preterists contend that preterist teachings are found in the early writings of the uh, early church as early as the fourth century. So um, crucial to the preterist view is the dating of Revelation. And we're going to get into that also. Uh, we will cover this prior to getting into the verse by verse. Uh, since it is a prophecy of the destruction. Uh, preterists hold that it had to have been written before 70 AD, obviously. And accordingly, John was writing specifically to the church of his day and had only its situation in mind. You seven churches, this you are the recipients. I have you in mind. I am writing this book. This is pre-destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, they believe the letter was written to encourage the saints to persevere under Roman persecution. There are a number of reasons why the preterists maintain this view. First, Jesus said at the end of the Olivet Discourse, truly I say unto you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Everything that he said in Matthew needed to take place, and Jesus said a generation will not pass. There's been wordplay on that, but if you want to be honest with it, the generation meant 40 years. 40 years from when he said it would have been around 70 AD, and that's one of the main ones. Because generation usually refers to 40 years, the fall of Jerusalem fit in that time frame of Jesus' prediction. Also, uh, another thing that supports many preterist views is Josephus. He recorded in detail the fall of Jerusalem, and uh, there are many things in Josephus' writings that fulfill the description in Revelation of the end of that age, relevant to John's readers in that day. From the eagles coming from the, and the lightning coming from the, like from the west to the east and the eagles and all that stuff, all fulfilled in, in Josephus' writing. And then, of course, there's also a number of criticisms to the preterist view. Uh, first... The events described in Jesus' Olivet Discourse and in Revelation 4.19 differ in many ways from what's in Revelation. 
One example is Christ described his return to Jerusalem in this way. I just mentioned that as lightning comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, preterists believe this refers to the Roman army's advance into Jerusalem with lightning bolts inscribed on their uniforms, which is historically supported. But the Roman army advanced on Jerusalem from the west to the east. So while we have a, a parallel, we don't have it fitting exactly Christ's words in the preterist view. And that's difficult for some people to understand. We'll cover that as we continue on. Um, another criticism of the preterist view is uh, General Titus, who was the one who helped destroy Jerusalem, did not set up an abomination of desolation, as Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24 of the Jerusalem temple. Instead, he destroyed the temple and burned it to the ground. He didn't set something up for him to be worshipped. And that is a criticism against the partial and full preterist view. Um, the, the preterist responds that Nero did this in a small way, but... Uh, the others say Titus didn't do it. Another criticism of the preterist view is the claim, typically from futurists at the far end, that preterists are required to allegorize or stretch metaphors that occur in the book through the symbols in order to find fulfillment of prophecy in the fall of Jerusalem. And I'll leave that up to you to see if you think it's too much of a stretch that preterists apply to show that that destruction happened or not. An example of that allegorical interpretation is in Revelation 7.4. Um, John identifies a special group of prophets, the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. Okay? The preterist Hank Hennegraaff states that this group represents the true bride of Christ and is referred to in Revelation 7.9 as the great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. In other words, the 144,000 of verse 4 and the great multitude that no one could count in verse 9 are not, that's not the same thing. So there's a, there's a problem in this type of thinking. I'm just giving you, uh, we'll examine this when we get to it, but I'm just giving you examples of how. Uh, Robert Mounts, again the scholar, says, quote, the major problem with the preterist position is that the decisive victory portrayed in the latter chapters of the apocalypse was never achieved. Uh, it is difficult to believe that John envisioned anything less than the complete overthrow of Satan, the final destruction of evil, and the eternal reign of God. If this is not to be, then the seer was essentially wrong in the major thrust of his message, or his work was so helplessly ambiguous that its first recipients were all led astray, end quote. So Mounts throws hard at the preterist views that everything has been fulfilled, including the complete wipeout of Satan, the final destruction, and the eternal reign of God. And he makes a good point. So we're going to have to discuss that as well. Mounts and other New Testament uh, scholars believe the preterist interpretations are not consistent and utilize allegorical interpretations like the idealists do to make passages fit their theological view. All right? Also, uh, you're well familiar with attending here. The preterist position rests heavily on that dating, and I'm going to include that in our preface material before we go to our verse by verse, the dating of Revelation. Most New Testament scholars uh, for the past uh, 800 years, I think, maybe longer, uh, and longer, yeah, longer, have dated the book to 95 AD. If that's the case, the preterist view is absolutely false. 
because there's no way this book could speak to the destruction of Jerusalem and be written 25 years after the destruction. So if you decide and through your studies and through the spirit that this book was written after, but based on the evidence provided, throw the preterist view out from the number of views that you're going to interpret, because that's the key, really, if it was written prior or not. Um, and there's a number of things that we'll talk about relative to the dating of it. Um, preterists argue that this indicates that the temple, um, there's things in the book of Revelation that indicate the temple was still standing when John wrote this. And so we'll see if that holds water. That's the idealist, that's the preterist views. Uh, we'll begin our uh, scorecard when we start in our verse by verse, which will be in three weeks as we continue to study this book. Questions, comments, or insights? Adam Guyman is first on the list. Delaney, give the mic to Guyman. Still hot. My name is Adam Guyman, and I have a couple things I was thinking of. Uh, you mentioned that there's four different categories. Is there some people that take a little bit from each of those categories and put those is what they believe so Probably. they won't believe everything in each category and then uh before you do your first one i'm sure i think most of us probably do we're probably not pure anything and we'll give leeway on yeah that might be right and then uh talking about because you mentioned something about the uh the uh you know the it slipped my mind but the revelation about how we're not supposed to take it literally but oh. yet uh uh now when jesus was before he is born there was right was there writings that were given where people uh or or is what we read in the bible about him because i know it describes somewhere in the bible that it describes how people were warned or let known about that jesus was going to be born and are they talking kind of in the sense about that as well or how is that interpreted most scholars think that what was written in the old testament had several applications one was right to that immediate time that david when he wrote about certain things was speaking about his present circumstance that he could have been speaking about a circumstance also relative to the nation of israel and that he also was uttering a messianic prophecy that he wasn't sure he was, he didn't even know he was uttering, that we could look back and see it was a prophecy for the Christ. And so uh, there would be a literal, literal application of the Old Testament when you read it, and, uh, but there was also a, a, a figurative application too. Because I, cause I'm just wondering if, if people, because I know a lot of churches look at the fact of revelation as kind of, you know, saying that it's so literal that it is going to be, because you mentioned before that it was, the book actually teaches that, or is saying that it, it every, it, you know, if everything happened in 70 AD, then, uh, you know, why would churches still want to continue to teach us that, oh, we need to get our food stores together because we're, we're not going to be, uh, uh, you know, because one day, you know, Jesus is, is going to be coming back again. Yeah. 
And so those churches would be the, hold the futurist view, mm -hmm. and they would believe that. And quite frankly, when you read the signs of our times and you read the descriptions of the end times, it's very easy to see those things being fulfilled through the book of Revelation. So maybe going to your first question, Adam, they are seeing part of what Revelation's for. It's to warn about our times today, and they're not looking at some of the other views that also are applicable. But the historist view is always literal, and it's happening now. Thanks, Adam Guyman. Anybody else? All right, let's pray. Who's brought forth the prayer list? Sleepers of the temple. <laughs> He's got it. Thank you, Nathan, for being wide awake and flight of foot. Thank you, brother. It was supposed to be cooler today. Lord, we, uh, we're grateful we can gather together and seek and try to understand this book, and uh, we pray your spirit will continue with us. Give us insight. Help us as we uh, move on that we will be Christian and have um, your spirit with us, reaching out to people in faith and love, trying to apply the important things of Revelation and every other book in the Bible to our lives and those around us. We pray for those who are struggling in this life. We all are, and we pray for our sister Heidi, and um, she'll continue to have victory. And we pray for uh, Jarvis, that he will have victory over the cancer that has invaded his body. We pray for Christine, that she will heal in her emotional state. For Taylor to uh, heal in his addictions. And for Dean, that he'll come to know Jesus and get over his addiction. We pray for the state of Utah. Uh, we pray for all the nation, all the world, but particularly the state of Utah, that a fire will be lit and uh, the people who are in bondage to uh, sin or religion or law and don't know you and aren't free in you will come to know you. Their eyes will be open, their ears will hear, and their heart will be converted and they can be healed. We pray that for all of us, Lord. So help us as we exit now that we will... Uh, go forward in your will and uh, submit our will uh, along the way. In Jesus' name, amen.